And I've been traveling a lot and sometimes I can't even get a hotel room because I'm, I'm under the age of 21. And yet I still was able to get my breast removed when I was 15. Today I sit down with Chloe Cole. At age 13, she was prescribed puberty blockers and then testosterone. At age 15, she got a double mastectomy. But I had hoped that, I mean, one day, one day it, would, it, would be, it would be over and I would finally feel better, but I didn't. At age 16, she decided to detransition and started re-identifying as a girl. Now she plans to sue the medical group and hospital that facilitated and advised her and her parents in her medical transition. They were very misled. They were manipulated even by our doctors. They said that there's less than a 1-2% to regret rate. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Chloe Cole, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Well, you're here at this summit on ending gender ideology here in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so why don't, why don't we just start with that? I mean, you're, tell me what you were talking about. Yeah, so that was at the, uh, the Heritage Foundation building. And um, on the second day of the summit, I gave an account of my experiences transitioning as a minor. You know, this was a long path for you, and it started very, very early. I think you were 12, right? Yeah, I was 12 when I first started identifying as transgender. Give me a picture of what happened. How did, I mean, for some people, it's even hard to imagine how you get the idea that that's, that that's the case. I think in order to get into that, I do have to talk about my early childhood. Um, I mean, from a pretty young age, my parents were constantly in a fight with both my school and my doctors. Um, I had some difficulties with uh, things like getting my assignments done or staying organized in class. And I also had some issues socializing and getting along with other kids my age and especially girls. And my teachers noticed this and they suggested to my parents that I might be on the spectrum. But when my parents tried to get diagnosed, get me diagnosed with autism, the physician just said, there's no way that she's autistic. She's, she's too smart. <laughs> that was the answer they got, and they were refused a second opinion. Hmm. But I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was around six or seven, and then they started putting me on medication for it at 10. So I wasn't the easiest kid to raise, and I was, I was a bit of a tomboy growing up. Um, I've, got, I've got two older brothers, and... Uh, I, I mean, growing up, I would, I would play with their toys and play video games with them and play in the, in the dirt, things like that. Um, I did have a feminine side, but as I got older, I started to feel almost ashamed about that, and I, I repressed that part of me. Um, I think it was due in part to the teasing that I got from, from boys and then eventually... When I was in middle school, I started to feel inadequate um, compared to other girls and women. Um, I started using social media, and there was a specific body type, um, certain features that were presented as the ideal that I felt like I couldn't really match up to. Um, I mean, at the time, I didn't really understand it, but a lot of what I was going through as a kid was pretty normal, but I never really had these conversations with anybody growing up. <laughs> um, but when I got my first phone, um, everybody in my class was using apps like 
Snapchat and Instagram, and I made my first Instagram accounts, and I was seeing a lot of things that I, I guess you'd say were either questionable or just not really easy for an 11-year-old to understand. Um, not only like the the images of young women that I was seeing, but also the content posted by other other people my age. Um, I started getting exposed to a lot of uh, feminist ideology. Um, it implanted this idea in my head that being a woman in this world was awful and dangerous. I mean, a lot of the women and girls that I talked to growing up would uh, complain about like getting their periods and having to go through the physical changes of puberty, um, their fear of becoming pregnant and giving birth and eventually getting older, aging, going through that process and going through menopause. It was often talked about in a negative light and I mean, hearing all this stuff about growing from a girl into a woman without being told about the benefits that really come with it made me not want that for myself. Some of the posts that I was reading even said things like, oh, we're, we've historically been oppressed and it's still that way. And some even said that it was getting worse, that our, our reproductive rights are being taken away. And it was, it was quite scary for me to be reading all of that at a young age. Um, at roughly the same time in uh, the online communities that I was browsing, um, I was kind of a nerdy kid. I liked my video games and cartoons and things like that. Um, and in a lot of the communities based around those those topics, there happened to be a lot of people around my age, um, in their early teens to their their twenties, who um, there seemed to be a lot of overlap be between that and identifying as LGBT or um, gay or bisexual or transgender. The algorithms and the, the content that I was seeing started to shift. I started seeing content that was focused specifically on the topic of, of sexuality or gender identity. A lot of them were like infographics um, about like the process of transitioning and how gender dysphoria works. And um, I started noticing some parallels with myself, especially with the, the gender stuff, I started, uh, first I started questioning, like, maybe, what, what, what if I'm, what if I'm bisexual or pansexual, and then it became questioning of my gender identity. I think after being exposed to all that for some time, and especially at such an impressionable age, it was kind of a natural progression, but there is kind of an appeal to kids. I mean, it's all these phrases and um, these colorful flags and even almost sort of a culture around it that kind of draws you in, especially if you're a kid who struggles to socialize in person and doesn't really have much of a community. And I mean, that was, that was definitely me. At some point I decided that it just, it just made sense that I wasn't actually a girl and that I was instead a boy. Um, there was, there was one theory that I read that um, the reason why people experience gender dysphoria is because they actually have the brain of the opposite sex. And so that, that makes them take on um, 
characteristics and behaviors that are more frequently um, associated with one sex or the other. Um, this has been debunked several times, but I mean, I was, I was only 12 and I was, I was impressionable. Well, and there's this whole world that you were in, right? Online world yeah. that reinforced all of this. Yeah. I mean, at school, I, I did struggle a bit to, to make friends, especially after, after I moved schools um, before middle school. And um, so I, d I turned to the internet. <laughs> um, at first, I started just cutting my hair a little bit shorter each time I got a haircut. And then uh, buying more clothing from from the boys section and then eventually I decided to change my name and um, I came out to some people at school, um, some people online, my older sister and eventually after a few months I decided that I wanted to go through the process of medically transitioning. It was scary but I knew that I would have to at least talk to my parents about it and get them on board with it. I wasn't sure how they would react and I mean it's 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 really it's really a big conversation to have. That's not as a parent that's not really something you would expect to hear out of your kid. And I, I knew this at the time and I wanted to allow them some time to think about it. So I started the conversation through a letter that I left on the coffee table actually. Um and they, they were surprised, <laughs> um, but they wanted, they wanted to support me and they, they were, they were cautious. They weren't really sure what to do. So they decided maybe we should try to get to the bottom of this and get a professional involved so that we, we know how to deal with this. And just a quick question. So up to now, this is you sort of interacting with people online, reading things. There's really, there's no teachers, medical professionals, anybody involved. This no, is I, I never saw anything like this. I never saw anything about this subject in school, actually. Um, mm. I graduated last year. It was never discussed in any class I had, actually. Um, but at this point in time, I wasn't really directly interacting with people about this subject specifically either online. Like I, I, most, I was mostly just like following or viewing these communities, hmm. but it still left a pretty considerable impact on me. Sure, I mean, you know, clearly, right? The power of suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. So then, so you've told your parents now, so what happens? They, you, you visit someone or? Yeah, they decided it was a good idea to start sending me to a therapist. Um, they didn't get what they, they wanted what, 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 and really what I, what I needed. Um, the causes behind my dysphoria never really were explored. It was, instead it was, it was, it was really just like, oh, okay, so you're, you say you're a boy and you want to be referred to you by this name. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You're a boy. <laughs> no, no real questioning. Um, But I was I was I was referred to a gender specialist after about a month or so, and I had been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Shortly after that, I started expressing to my parents and my physicians that I had a desire to transition medically. And my mom and dad pushed back on this actually, especially my dad. He wanted me to to wait until I was eighteen. They he didn't want to have me make a 
such a complicated decision at such a young age. He wanted to leave that responsibility to me when I was legally an adult. But they were effectively coerced into allowing me to do this because um, the medical professionals talked to them about it. They they said that there was less, there's less than a one to two percent regret rate in people who transition, and um, they never brought up what might happen, what the process would look like were that to happen. Um, I mean, I didn't even know that it was possible until it happened to me, but um, the reg the regret rate. Yeah, yeah they. Right. My my dad asked about that. That was that was what they told him, and they never they never presented any other options to them. They just said they they cited the suicide statistics. They said that it was really a matter of life or death if I wasn't allowed to transition. So I've, oft, I've often heard, people have told me on this show, that it's very common for parents and kids and even adults who are thinking about this to be told, well, if, if you don't let your kid transition, they're going to commit suicide. I don't remember them saying this to me. I think they, they actually told that to my parents while I was out of the room even. Mm. So even I didn't, didn't believe this at the time. I mean... I wasn't suicidal until I was about 14 or 15, um, a year or so after I started these treatments. But the way I saw it at the time was that it was a condition that I had that was, obviously because it was a condition, it needed to be treated and that this was the treatment. So you mean you're, you're 13, you're beginning the process of medical transition. What is that? How does that look like? After only about half a year, um, between getting the diagnosis, I I was referred to an endocrinologist to be put on blockers. And then after I got my first blocker shot, I um, about a month later, I had gotten my prescription for testosterone as well. So it was it was really quite quick. That's almost unbelievable, and you know. Were you told of the potential side effects of these treatments? I mean, they did list some side effects on the consent forms. They weren't, they weren't comprehensive. They didn't list um, some commonly known side effects. Um, but they, I, w I was told that it would affect, um, it, would it would cause like atrophy of certain, the testosterone, or really the lack of estrogen in my body would cause like a, like an atrophy in certain reproductive organs. But I, I was also told that it might affect my ability to conceive children as an adult. But I was 13 at the time when I, when I consented, when, when, I, when I signed, signed these off. I wasn't thinking about having kids. And I didn't know what, I mean, I was, I was, really I was being expected to make an adult decision on things that I had no experience with and no knowledge on. It really does sound like that, doesn't it? I mean, let, let, let's kind of go a little further along the way. So, you know, very quickly, you're on puberty blockers, you're on testosterone, and then what happens? I mean, in the amount of time between starting the blockers and the testosterone, um, after all the hormones were cleared out of my body, um, I was in a state of 
what could be considered an artificial menopause. It caused me to experience hot flashes and itching all over my body, and it did make me lethargic, and I did struggle to focus just a little bit more in class, and I, I pretty much woke up every day just hoping for the next big, big step, which for me was testosterone. And so when I started on the testosterone, I mean, I felt, I felt great. I, I finally had hormones back in my body and I was, I had my energy back, I had my appetite back. And very shortly after I started seeing the, the effects of it. Um, the first of which would be my voice dropping. That came in only a matter of probably as soon as two weeks. And it was pretty dramatic. My voice dropped pretty low, actually, um, a lot lower than it is now. Um, but I also started building a little bit of muscle and my facial features started to become a little more rough and squarish. And my hair, my eyebrows got thicker. I started growing a very small amount of facial hair. Um, my shoulders got bigger and I became stronger and more physically fit. And I mean, for the first time, really, I felt confident about myself. Wow. So you, at this point, you're thinking this is something that's working. Yeah. I would say there's, there's a bit of a honeymoon period even. About halfway through my, my sophomore year, I started, um, I started expressing to my therapist that I wanted to get double mastectomy, um, which at the time I called, we called it top surgery. Right. So what, what do you think of that euphemism? I've heard that talked about. It really downplays the real seriousness of this operation, almost in sort of a childlike way. It's almost like it's like it's being broken down to make it easier for like a kid or somebody who's young to digest a little bit more easily. And you're, I mean, you are a kid. Yeah. <laughs> in this, going through all this, trace to me to the point where you realize that something's wrong. Before I, before I got the surgery. Um, by the time I was in my sophomore year, I mean, I really was not in, in my best shape. Mm. Um, I was diagnosed with depression and social anxiety, and they started, uh, they started medicating my depression. And I just continued to, to get worse. Um, I was also I was also using a um, a chest binder since my eighth grade year after an incident of a boy at school who had um, who had assaulted me. I, I would wear I would wear this thing for I'd say about eight to twelve hours a day. I mean I was I would, I would be at school for school's about eight hours, and I would I would wear it whenever I was out of the house whenever we had. Whenever there are people over, whenever I was whenever I was working out outside or swimming, I just got so sick of it. It wasn't painful, but it was it was very uncomfortable. So during the summer, it was especially suffocating, and I wanted to be free of it. And I fell into the delusion that I was actually a boy, just living within a girl's body, and. I wanted to look like the other boys my age. 
I, I had that I had that that trauma as well from from being assaulted and having a, having a fear of of it happening ever again. This might be a bit of a strange question, but did you really believe you you could you were a boy or you could become a boy? It was I'd say really it was it was the former. It's it's hard to explain because I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it was almost kind of a spiritual, a religious belief. But there, there were a lot of motivations behind getting my breasts removed that, some of which at the time I didn't realize were there. I mean, when I, when I had been assaulted, um, this was while I was early in my transition, and I just thought of it as as boys being boys, and I should just man up if I wanted to to be one and i was I was in kind of a delicate situation anyways because I knew that if i if I wanted to speak up and bring it up to like a, a staff member or somebody in the office at school um, the kid more likely than not, would have just received like a week-long suspension or something and come back and possibly do something worse. And I didn't want to deal with that. So you go through this surgery. What is supposed to happen after that, you know, in this uh, progression, I guess? Well, I believe that after the the healing process was over, I would I would be happy and I would, I would be happy about being closer to my true self as a real man and um, finally be able to go out shirtless and work out and swim without worrying. Um, but that never happened. I never, I never fully healed and I've even had some complications pop up years afterward, but after I woke up from the surgery, I, I felt pretty happy. Um, it was an outpatient surgery, so I was sent home pretty much as soon as I was conscious and the meds had worn off. It was a major surgery and I had lost um, pretty much my entire range of motion in my upper body, so I had to have my mom take a few weeks off of work and stay home to help me around the house and feed me. Um, after that period though, once I had the stitches taken out and I had to start bathing again and wrap and unwrap the dressings. It started to take a turn for the worse. It was like a slap to the face. Um, every night when I looked down, when I looked in the mirror, I would just see my wounded chest. And looking at myself, I, I felt disgusting. I felt like a freak. But I had hoped that, I mean, one day, one day it, would, it, would be, it would be over and I would finally feel better. But I didn't. It just kept getting worse. I kept justifying it in my head as just being part of the post-op process. I mean, some people get depressed after they have a major surgery like this. But it, it never, 
really improved. And over time, I started to realize that I missed having a more feminine form. I missed wearing makeup and doing my hair and wearing dresses and skirts and pink and things like that. Pretty, I guess you'd say, stereotypical, trivial stuff. But there were some things about being a woman that I just missed. I mean, over the course of my social transition, I learned that certain things are pretty restricted for for boys and socialization. I mean, not only like in terms of how you express yourself, but also even just in the way you, you interact and bond with other people. A lot of my relationships started to feel more superficial and I, can't re- I couldn't really bond with people of either sex as well. Mm-hmm. And once the honeymoon period was over, I started to learn that I was taking on a role that I wasn't really prepared for and really that I wasn't that I wasn't fit for and that I didn't want. It wasn't until um, I had a class in psychology though that the realization had fully hit me that transition was my biggest mistake actually. Um, in that class I learned about um, child psychology and development and parenting and maternity. And there is a particular lesson about a study on monkeys using either, using either a, a cloth mother or a wire mother with a, an apparatus in the chest to simulate breastfeeding. And one of the findings was that uh, the ones who were able to cling to their mothers and feed from them and have that, that, that physical affection, that warmth, um, tended to perform better um, socially, cognitively and emotionally Hmm. and I mean they did tell me before the surgery that I would lose my ability to breastfeed but this meant nothing to me at the time because I believed I was a boy and that I was going to grow up into a man and men don't do things like that but I also didn't know how important it really was I hadn't really thought of how being a parent would look like for me even because I was just a kid. I mean, you're just a kid. Because how could you possibly know? They justify it by saying, oh, kids already know their gender by a certain age, so they, they know what's, what's best for themselves. But what, what do you think of that now? I mean... Any parent, anybody who has a younger sibling or a niece or a nephew or knows even a little bit about child psychology knows that this is not true, not one bit, and that children need to be protected from themselves. They need guidance. And that was not what I was given at all. I get the sense you're telling me that you're, you think your parents did tried to do the best they could, but they were misled. I don't want to put words in your mouth. They were very misled. Yeah. They were manipulated even by our doctors. If I may, you don't have to respond, but I, you know, there, there was a moment where you said you, you, you did get suicidal. And what was it like? What, what, was it just the hopelessness of the whole situation? What was it that prompted that? 
I, I felt quite hopeless for a lot of reasons. Um, not only with the changes in socialization and with, with my, my friendships and relationships becoming less close, less satisfactory. Um, there was a lot of stress placed onto me because I was living a lie, really. Um, you know, I had a fear of going to the male facilities. I, I did use the, the boys' restrooms and locker rooms at school, but it was scary. I was really terrified of eventually being found out and something terrible happening to me. I didn't know what I would do, and so, I mean, it's not like I could have used, like, the girls' restrooms because I, then I would be <laughs> making the girls uncomfortable. There weren't, like, any, any accessible bathrooms that I, could, sure. that I could use that were available to students, so I just used the, the male restrooms. And another thing about the, the change, the social changes, was that I was still attracted to, to guys, but I was starting to look like one as well, and there's really not very many males out there who are attracted to other males. And even if I wasn't actually a guy, I, I looked like one. And my dating pool was quite limited. And I mean, as, as, a, as a teen, things like dating really shouldn't be that important. But I was watching all my friends get into relationships and develop really close bonds with other people our age. And I was just missing out on this completely and I felt like there was something wrong with me. And I think really that was one of the biggest, the biggest things feeling my depression. Not necessarily being unable to get into a relationship, but just lack of intimacy and community in general. I would imagine people in this, in the trans community, or that are you know pursuing the gender ideology or believe in this, would say, well, everything you've just talked about is is proof of our case, right? Like, look, you know, the society doesn't understand us; we're oppressed. Um, this is wrong. We need to have tolerance. Do you see? Do you see what I mean? What do you think? I mean, every person that I know my age who has transitioned has only become a lot worse off after they started, after socially transitioning, after starting on hormones or getting surgeries. They've become so much worse. A lot of them have developed issues with substance abuse or um, their, their relationships with their families and friends have become completely destroyed. And a lot of them have, have um, no, all of them actually, they have some sort of sexual or familial trauma. And this is like b before, from beforehand? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Right. And then it all, I, I, see, I see it get worse after they start, so much worse. So this is one of the things that I've understood from talking to people like Miriam Grossman, Dr. Miriam Grossman on this show and others, um, that very commonly people that have this gender dysphoria diagnosis, there's a, 
There's other underlying conditions that are very important. Almost always. Right. So this is your experience with the people you know as well. They're really quite vulnerable people. And they change completely. They become new people after they transition. And it's almost always a change for the worse. They, I mean, even within these communities, they encourage others to cut off contact with their family over differences in opinions or feelings. And a lot of them get each other started on like drinking or smoking or using psychedelics even. And it's, it's encouraged. So there's this the whole kind of community element, right? So this is you discovered this community online, but then somehow you've, you've found them also in real life yeah. in the process. Yeah. Um, so it started online. And in middle school, I didn't know anybody else who was transitioning. I mean, I knew, I knew a lesbian or two, but it wasn't until my sophomore year that I started noticing these other girls my age starting to identify as non-binary or trans-masculine or as a trans boy. And with each school year after that, more and more of them started popping up. And it was always girls who had eating disorders or body image issues or they were, they were overweight or they didn't really have very many friends. I always noticed some sort of pattern. Hmm. So it just be- became sort of much more of a thing over time. Yeah. Do you think you've influenced any of them along the way? Yeah, I had a, I had a few friends who transitioned after I did. I never, I never pushed anybody into transitioning, but when you're a kid, you are impressionable and you tend to copy the behaviors and sometimes even the presentation of the people around you. So, what do you make of that now that you've, you know, that you decided to detransition? I, I do feel a little bit of guilt, even if I never told them, like, hey, you should transition. <laughs> even if it was them making that choice. I still get this feeling like if it never happened, would they, would they be like this right now? A lot of my former transgender friends, both online and from school, have cut ties with me after I've started speaking out about my experience. What was the moment where you kind of realized that, okay, I'm, I'm going to go in the other direction? Because it sounds like there's this sort of progression to this point. Tell me what you were thinking. After, that, after I finished that psychology class, um, a few weeks afterward is when it really started to hit me that I just couldn't keep going on like this. I stopped taking my testosterone shots entirely and I started growing out my hair and buying new clothes. You, you, you stopped like just, you cut them off, the testosterone. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? It was horrific. I, I dropped 25 pounds in a matter of two months. I lost my appetite almost entirely and I was having digestive issues alongside that. 
I was already experiencing some issues um, with my urinary tract about a year or so on testosterone and going off of it made it so much worse, at least temporarily. Um, I mean, in terms of my physical health, I've been getting a lot better the longer that I'm off of it. But when I initially went off of it, the, the emotional adjustment, the psychological adjustment was very difficult. You have this, uh, you know, letter of intent to sue out, right? For some of the people that were involved, the medical professionals that were involved in the process of your transitioning. When you made this decision to detransition, did you alert any of these or any medical professionals? Were you looking for help there? Or you just said, I, this is up to me. I'm on my own here. Yeah. I made the decision to go off testosterone completely on my own. I, was, I wasn't exactly sure what to do, what the overall picture might be for my health and my fertility and how my life really would go from there. So... Naturally, I sought the help of the people who got me, helped me get into the situation in the first place, and there really wasn't any. So what, so what, what did they say? Well, um, I think the first person that I reached out to was my endocrinologist. I requested some, some blood work, and I told her specifically, I no longer identify as transgender. I want the results back for a female my age, but when I got my results back, the guidelines for for my hormone levels were showing up as the averages for a teenage boy my age. And I think that was really the first thing that made me realize, I'm not going to get any help with this. Um, I reached out to my therapist, my gender specialist, and they had not a clue what to do with me. And eventually I reached out to my surgeon as well to report that I regretted um, my mastectomy and my transition as a whole, and that I was still experiencing some complications, some of which had popped up um, well after they should have. And it's to the point that every day I have to I have to bandage up my chest. He told me to keep doing that, but also to put Vaseline on my chest, which actually temporarily gave me a skin infection. That was the last straw for me. That was when I knew these people have no intent to help me. But, but you did find support somewhere, right? I mean... From my family, and... I lost a lot of friends through this process, but in the end, I, I figured out who my real friends were, and I've managed to make some more outside of school. Given everything you've just told me, you know, the, the, the decision to go public with this, that's quite the decision. Uh... It's, it's not easy. I mean, even when I start expressing my my regret with, with transitioning and just bringing it up, I would get attacked on my personal social media by other transgender people, even by people who weren't trans but call themselves allies. Um, and 
it got to the point that I just stopped speaking about it for a little bit because I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle that kind of treatment. These are people that I thought cared about me, that I shared a common experience with, and that I could, I could bond with, and that could understand me. But because I stopped, I guess, they started seeing me as some sort of traitor. Um, eventually, though, I realized how unfair the treatment was and that I was being lied to not only by my doctors, but even my friends in the community. At around this time, I was also starting to speak with other people who have regretted or stopped their transitions. And I learned that this is a lot more, this experience, going through all the motions, thinking it's the best thing ever, and eventually being hit with this wave, this wave of regret, and eventually losing your friends, your community, it's so much more common than I thought. But I was pretty lucky to make it to that point. Not everybody can, and not everybody has a voice. So I took it upon myself to start speaking up because I don't know who will. I don't know how much you've been following the Twitter files, the releases. One of the things that struck me, um, there's of course a lot of censorship of uh, certain viewpoints, right? But the thing that really struck me about it is the, the other side of it is there's this ability through social media, and this was demonstrated, I mean, we kind of know in theory, but with these Twitter files, it kind of really showed itself. You can just kind of shape the perception of the reality for a whole swath of society. What you're describing strikes me as, as one of these areas where, you know, one viewpoint is dominant and celebrated and, and kind of, the, the frankly, you know, almost like the only correct, the only way you can really view things. And the other one is sort of, you know, I guess not supposed to exist. I, yeah, it's ridiculed and laughed at even. Like it's a joke. So, you know, you, you know, you've become this a, a little bit somewhat of a face for the, if there's a detransitioning movement or, or detransitioners. How common is this? We don't even really know. There's, it's hard to even get information about this, right? We don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough studies on this yet. I mean, there's plenty of studies out there, but not without major flaws. I mean, the dropout rate of these studies a lot of them are upwards of 20%. And they're, they're very skewed, very biased. And the criteria for reasons to, de to detransition, they often cite like, uh, like societal reasons, like feeling pressured to, or not having enough money to continue a full medical transition. But none of those people ever stop identifying as trans, and most of them didn't express regret. I mean, so you're, basically you're talking about studies where they're, you're trying to look at what is the regret rate, I guess, what is the, what is the likelihood that yeah. someone will be happy with, the, with their decisions? And they're what studying people who still identify as trans, even if they're not, even if they're not medically transitioning. Right. Because, but you, do you ascribe that, is this because just 
again, because there's only one real answer that's kind of allowable. Is that the, is that yeah. how you understand it? Okay. So what do you, what to do in the face of this? What do you do? You know, what's your, what's your approach here? I just keep giving my testimony and bring light to what's happening to children at the hands of negligent medical professionals and now even schools. And my hope in doing this was not only to give my own account, but also to encourage other people in the situation to give theirs. And I've seen so many more people in the situation popping up almost every day on social media. And even some people who, like me, had transitioned as minors medically. In Europe, in a number of countries in Europe, they're approaching this whole question of transitioning as a solution very differently than they do in the U.S. these days. And I they're slowing down. Right. Right. Almost a total halt in some countries. Right. And so, I mean, what do you make of the fact that and there's this whole, the Tavistock Clinic is being sued for is something similar to, to what, you've, what you've been describing to me happened, right? But the, yeah, but the U.S., it's not slowing down anytime soon. And I feel like that's mostly because, I mean, a lot of areas... Um, the U.S. is just motivated more by money and by political power. How does the money fit into this? The surgeries, I would say, are the most lucrative, but I think the figures for the average cost for full medical transition, um, including hormones and hormonal treatments and surgeries, is around 300000 for a single patient. It's pretty lucrative. Basically, you're saying that there's this financial incentive for hospitals to, or clinics to, to, to do this. I mean, yeah. I mentioned this, um, this intent to sue that you have. So what, what is that? Explain that to me. Uh, what, are you, what, are you, what is your plan here? So I teamed up with Center for American Liberty um, with Harmeet as my lawyer to sue my surgeon my gender specialist and my endocrinologist, as well as Kaiser as a whole and the hospital that did it. Right now, we're still in the 90-day period. Um, we haven't filed the lawsuit yet or gotten a response, but it's, it's coming pretty soon. What is it that, they did, that you think they did wrong? They withheld information from my parents and me. They didn't give a fully comprehensive list of the, the side effects that um, blockers and testosterone and the surgery would give me and I also wasn't capable of making that that kind of decision at the age that I was my parents did sign off on everything because they were they were required to but they were scared into it hmm. they were manipulated not only that it's caused me physical and emotional harm. Those are years that I will never get back. I don't know if I'll be able to carry a child to term, and I certainly won't be able to, to feed them naturally. You described the situation in your school where as time went on, more and more girls are basically coming out 
so to speak, as trans. And so there's a lot of parents out there right now who are, you know, maybe seeing this happen to their their child or the child of a, a family next door or something like this. So w- what would you say to parents that are seeing this? Like, what, what advice would you give them? You have to be strict, but loving. Really, you have to be as involved in their lives as you can and show them how much you love them without affirming their desire to become the opposite sex or their belief that they they actually are. Some telltale signs of a kid wanting to or trying to socially transition would be that they're changing their expression. Like if they're a boy, they're starting to to wear makeup or to grow their hair out or wear clothes of of the opposite sex. And I'd say it's pretty, for, for girls, it would be pretty similar, but they would be, instead it would be like haircuts or stopping wearing makeup or wearing different clothes, um, which is often pretty normal. I mean, kids and especially teens like to experiment with that, but it's often in combination with a drop in their grade performance or attendance or their who they associate with at school, oftentimes they'll have a friend who identifies as trans or non-binary or even multiple friends or an entire entire groups of kids who have some some transgender identity. Um, they might start to withdraw from you even. They might start getting secretive. They might start keeping things from you. They won't they might not talk to you as often. They might be always out of the house or withdrawing, staying in the room, always using social media. And it's important to monitor what your kid is looking at on social media, how long they're looking at it, and who they might be interacting with. You know, um, I, you're, you're 18 now, is that right? Yeah. This is, it doesn't feel like the advice of an 18-year-old, I guess that's what I'm saying. What about to, to people in your situation? You know, there's probably a lot of young people in your situation out there. What, what, do, what, what do you say to them? People who want to transition or people who regret their transition? Great question. Let's start with people who uh, might be wondering about whether transitioning is the right thing for them. Yeah, it's really best to just wait until you're an adult, and that might not necessarily mean reaching 18 to make a decision like that. Sometimes it might take until you're 21 or 25 or even much older to really determine whether this is something that you th- that might benefit you in the long run and make you feel better. But it's something that's hard to admit as a kid, but your mind isn't always in the right place. It's harder to really introspect and figure out where certain desires, certain feelings might come from. And not only that, but people, there are a lot of things about transitioning socially and medically that people don't really touch upon. Um, there's a lot of things that I didn't realize would happen until it, it happened to me. And even if those things were disclosed to me, I feel like I still wouldn't have really understood. And that's, that's the case for a lot of things, really. I mean, we, we bar kids 
bar people under the ages of 18, 21, 25, and so on from from being able to drink or smoke cigarettes or buy marijuana or rent a car. Or... I've, been, I've been traveling a lot and sometimes I can't even get a hotel room because I'm, I'm under the age of 21. And yet I still was able to get my breast removed when I was 15 because I wanted to. <laughs> um, but as when you're, when, you're, when you're young, you don't really realize the dangers of of certain things such as this. And it is a decision that impacts things like sexual function and your sexual relationships, um, as well as your ability to, to have kids. And until those are things that you really consider or have had experience with, it's not something that you can really make such an important decision on. There's there's men and women out there who don't realize that they want to have children until they're well into their 30s or 40s or even well past the time that they can physically have children. And so, and what about for the detransitioners, but prospective detransitioners who are thinking about it? I'm not going to encourage anybody to either transition or detransition. I mean, I went, I mean, I I went through both processes, and. Either of those, either way, it was really painful, and it's not something that I would wish on anybody. But it gets so much better from here. Those initial stages of stopping the hormones, stopping whatever medications you're on, and having to physically and emotionally adjust are really tough, and they can even be scary at times. And... The shame of admitting that you were wrong to your friends and your family members and your colleagues and so on. It's, it's hard to deal with, but it's important to remember that admitting that you were wrong is not a symptom of being weak. It's, it's quite the opposite. And it only gets so much better from there. Well, Chloe Cole, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for joining Chloe Cole and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm-hmm.